Welcome to First Generation Burn, the podcast dedicated to immigrants in the creative community. My name is Rich Tu, and I'm your host. Season 60, episode 60, season 7. Oh, excuse me. Jumping way far ahead. Uh, today, we have my friend Juan Villanueva. He is a type designer at Monotype, the famous foundry for all you type heads. He recently just funded his design scholarship for BIPOC students for the second time. I personally say BIPOC. Juan says BIPOC. I end up going back and forth on it, but I've heard both. Juan is someone I've wanted to have on here for a while now. We've talked about it, and I'm just glad we could finally make it happen. We discuss his Peruvian heritage, his education in America, how we got into prestigious institutions like Cooper Union and Monotype, of course. Uh, not a lot of designers make a living specifically dedicated to typeface design, and we talk about that also. And we also get into his split with the TDC, the Type Directors Club, um, also decolonization in design, and the importance of activism through visual culture. This is a really good conversation, so I'm glad you guys are tuning in today. But before all that, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, drop a review, make sure you're registered to vote, your life depends on it. So without further ado, here you go, our conversation with Juan. Juan Villanueva, how are you today, sir? Hey, I'm doing good. Nice to thank you for asking, Rich. How are you? Doing okay. Um, it is it is a beautiful day outside, <laughs> looking out at your window <laughs> behind you, and uh, and I'm glad that uh, we're we're talking today. Uh, for our listeners, you are a designer, a typographer, an educator, and also congratulations on uh, funding your by POC students in your principles of typeface design display type at Cooper Union this fall. Congrats yeah. on that. How many times Thank have you. you how many times have you funded that now? Oh, this is the second time. Um, I actually run it again this time because, you know, it's like this is an ongoing thing. Like we cannot just let this be a one time summer thing. This needs to be ongoing. So I decided to do it again. And the support of the community was amazing. We funded it in two days. So wow. um, I'm excited no, to do it again in the spring and just to keep getting at least, you know, a third of my class to be BIPOC students. Because I think that's really important, not only to my field, but, you know, as, as an instructor, you also need, you know, diversity in the classroom for it to be more like meaning, not meaningful, but more uh, useful for everyone because everyone benefits from it. And I think the class is completely different from the way it would be if it wasn't like that. Absolutely. One thousand percent. So. Congratulations on that. Going to run it back uh, next semester. But uh, for the beginning of our conversation, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from, and then we'll just jump right in. Uh, okay. Hey, so um, my name is Juan Villanueva. I'm a type designer at Monotype. I work there full time and I've been there for the past four and a half years. Uh, I'm also a teacher. I teach at Typography at the City College of New York and recently type design at the Cooper Union, uh, type at Cooper program, where I also studied. Um, and apart from that, I also like visit some like uh, virtual classrooms these days. Uh, before that used to be actual classrooms. Um, and, you know, apart from like my, my, the paying jobs, I also start initiatives that sort of like help the community become more diverse and inclusive. One of them being the type create crew, which is a way to like help type designers or people studying type, uh, whether they gone through an institution or not, to continue their education and continue growing in the field uh, without having to have, you know, the, that sort of like curriculum or uh, like resume behind them. 
yeah, the main point thing is that you want to learn something and the, the initiative is to connect uh, people who want to learn to experienced art designers to get feedback um, or portfolio reviews or but mainly focused on type which is a field that really needs to diversify uh, because types involved in everything so um, and I guess one of the latest thing is that, that one that you mentioned uh, earlier uh, the BIPOC uh, fund which it came out of um, it came out of this, I, this when, I, when I was asked to teach uh, display type, I really wanted to, it was really, it was during a time, you know, political, political unrest, people call it, but I think it's just people fighting for actual racial justice and also COVID. So there was a lot of things happening at the time. And it's, and it's you know, it's really hard to see the value that type design can bring during a time like that. Like, why am I teaching type? Like, but I think there is, you know, a way to sort of like, fight this in all different fronts you know you can go and protest right you can you know uh support you know the, the, the candidacy to like get people to vote and you can also do it uh in the ways you also try to like make a living or also teach i think part of that is like i'm not only going to teach the class and type design i'm going to teach a class and type design that sort of like uh, faces those difficult questions that are that, ha that need to be brought up in the world of typography. You know, how do we diversify the field? How do we diversify like education? How do we decolonize those things? Um, and also, you know, it also starts with the students, right? You cannot just have a class and you know not give people access to it. So part of that scholarship was to do that, like bring people in and be part of those conversations. Yeah, that sounds great. The, the idea of bringing people in definitely one of the main tenets of this podcast, and also. Uh, decolonizing our thoughts uh, around creativity as well as establishing um, uh, a new or a or widening the pantheon of individuals yeah. that we look at. I think that's super exactly. Uh, yeah. I'd love to take it back just a little bit um, to uh, your your cultural heritage. You're born in Lima, Peru, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and and also you spent a lot of your formative years in a state that I know very well, New Jersey. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'd love for you to take us back just a little bit about how uh, how you got to, how you got here. Mm, so yeah. A, a little bit of those uh, formative years. Yeah, so I, I was born in Lima, Peru. Um, I grew up, I was there until I was 16, and then things got really difficult over there, so my parents decided to move to the U.S., uh, which, you know, their, their hope was that I would get a better future and a better chance at, you know, succeeding at life. Um, so, so yeah, so we moved and then we moved to Clifton, New Jersey and, you Why know, New like, Jersey? Why Clifton? Uh, because we had family here. <laughs> I think that's, that was it. Uh, we had, my aunt was here, so we, we moved in with her and she helped us out a lot. Um, so I think one thing about perhaps, I don't know if this is about every culture, but Latin American culture, family is really important. Uh, so family will help you out no matter what, you know, even if there are some like friction between my family members at some point, um, there will still help you out if you do need help. So I think that's, that's something that sticks with me uh, throughout this whole time, right? So yeah, so we moved there and I think the move itself was, you know, it wasn't as, as much of a culture shock. It was more of an adventure because it was a whole new language and I didn't speak English. So my first summer was just learning English, um, trying to watch as many movies as I could and yeah, learn English from watching movies. There was also this series called English Without Barriers in Barreras. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's like every single Hispanic person that arrives to the U.S. kind of like watches that to learn English, maybe at the time. Uh, so it was like VHSs we used to play and just listen and watch. Oh, that's really cool. How, how old are you when you got here? Uh, I was like 14, I think. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I had a lot of, I had the experience of a lot of cousins. A lot of my cousins came here in elementary school mm. for them. And then it was the experience of, you know, learning English a bit later in life. It's actually amazing that right now <laughs> your, your, your livelihood and, and so much of what you do and who you are is about visualizing the English language, but for yeah. the BIPOC community. <laughs> That's, <laughs> have you ever thought about that? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, it's part of, uh, you know, this whole, uh, concept of like decolonizing that I've been trying to like figure out in my, for myself, uh, this whole summer. It's like, what, wh- how do you do, how do, how do you do what you're doing, you know, while expanding the canon, right? Without right. like, well, dismantling things that need to be dismantled at the same time, creating new things that perhaps are different, that right. open new, new doors, um, so, so yeah, like even the fact that I'm speaking English perhaps limits, you know, the kind of people that can apply to my scholarship at the same time, because I'm both English and Spanish speaking, you know, the level of English perhaps doesn't have to be as good if the instructor was not able to speak Spanish. So I, I can take some students that perhaps the English level are not great, but you know, they can still understand it. Then we can talk one-on-one in Spanish. So, um, Try to maybe live on that sort of like hybrid space. I think it's really important uh, because, you know, it's obvious we can't just unlearn everything we know, but we have to reconcile the, the positive and the negatives. And I think, you know, figuring out how you can do the best, the most good in a sense with what you have, I think it's really important so that you don't get left behind or get stuck in a mindset where you can't move because it's, it's very paralyzing once you think about that, right? Like, oh, I'm, I'm speaking in one language. I'm limited to this one thing. So how can I still find a way around that? And I think a lot of perhaps my immigrant experience has been sort of that, trying to like find a way around the hurdles, you know, figure out a way in or, you know, sort of like overcome this, this problem that face, uh, gets put in front of you. Um, yeah, I think that's the, the decolonization mindset, like you're saying, of, of breaking down the barrier and but also shifting your own perception alongside being a part of a, a source of education for other individuals who aren't necessarily that mind space. It's, it's so much extra energy for individuals that don't have to think or feel like that even. For you, from an education space, mm-hmm. um, taking it back, um, I know you went to Montclair State University, yeah. then also, and then you went to uh, Cooper Union. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. you graduated from their prestigious program. Uh, Tappet uh, Cooper, yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, with a type at, <laughs> at symbol, Cooper. It's very clever. Love it. Uh, how did you get from Montclair to Cooper Union? I don't think that's a typical jump. And also, what, what, was, your, what was your creative process with, within that time? It, it, it wasn't so quick as, no, as you've put it. It's, like, it's not never a linear process, but when you simplify, you have to like, put it in those like, steps, right? Uh, but I think it kind of goes back to uh, my roots of when I was a kid. I used to draw a lot. And I like drawing. I, once I went back to Peru, like, uh, like a couple of years ago, I, my, my aunt actually saved some of my early drawings that I thought were lost forever. So I realized, whoa, I, I was actually not that bad. <laughs> I remember like, I was actually like, pretty decent at drawing. Uh, but, you know, moving to the States, it was that mindset of creativity kind of like shifted because, you know, like in order to make money, you have to become an engineer or an accountant. And, you know, Mark, being my parents always wanted me to be a doctor. So, Oh, you got the old doctor baggage, huh? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so my, my dad actually wanted me to be an engineer. So this whole time when I was 
you know, in, in Peru and here, I wanted to be an engineer uh, or a physicist or a mathematician, one of those, you know, like, uh, like science-oriented majors. And I, I do love math. I love science. I love engineering. So that, that was great. Uh, but then when I was in community college, I realized that, you know, calculus was not as exciting as I thought it was going to be. Like, it's, it's not bad, but it's also not something I did, saw myself working on for the next 20, 30 years. So I took a drawing class and just to like balance out, you know, the physics and the calculus and all that. And I realized that I really enjoyed drawing. And I think part of that was my, my instructor was an illustrator, a professional children's book illustrator. He had a really good sense of humor. Who was that? Uh, his name is Adam Gustafsson. Um, he actually went to SVA, I think, for his master's. Yeah, that's good. I mean, like, yeah, but just taking like one drawing class from a good instructor sort of like sparked this idea in me that one, like, this is a viable career choice illustration. And two, the people that practice this are really well-cultured, well-rounded. Uh, and I saw that as something I wanted to pursue. So I, I, during one semester, I worked on my portfolio and I sort of like convinced my parents, you know, like, hey, I want to do this for real. If I work on my portfolio in the next few weeks and I apply to Montclair and I get accepted, uh, will you help me? And, you know, they saw that I was serious about it. And they said, okay, you know, like, we'll help you. But just, just show up, show, show that you actually want to do this. So I did it. I actually got accepted and they started to help me out. And I think once I got into university, I realized that part of like, my goal as a student was not to just, you know, there was no linear path. So I started with illustration, then I like got into graphic design, then into animation, into film, and sort of like following my own interests and caring a little bit less about grades and more about learning the things I thought would be beneficial for me, perhaps in the future, you know, to get a job, basically, right? Because it's uh, it was really hard to visualize my life as a professional illustrator. I don't know. At the time, it was like difficult to see where will I find a, yeah, a job, a stable I, I job. Did it. I did it solely as my, my only creative pursuit for a while, and it's tough. Still yeah, hard. I think graphic design seems a little bit easier because you can you know, get into the commercial aspect, production part of graphic design. But then you know, I also wanted to do motion graphics. And through that, I kind of like bumped into like typography and type. And I started drawing my own letters and then I realized, okay, if I really like this, this combines, you know, like illustration, this combines graphic design, this combines, I could also animate it. So it combines motion graphics and it also combines, you know, like sort of like the mathematical process uh, driven thinking that you need uh, in order to make a typeface. So I decided to study a type at Cooper and luckily I got, I got accepted. And then I just, the next thing was to figure out how to pay for it. But you know, that's I've it. heard, some stories about how intense the the process is <laughs> at Cooper. Well, first of all, I want to ask, yeah. do you have siblings? Um, I do. I have one younger sister and one even younger brother. Uh, we're like five years apart. Yeah, I'm the oldest. Okay. So technically the most responsible or theoretically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we were, you, if we were to yeah. go into the, the immigrant kid <laughs> rank of responsibility. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, as being the oldest, you kind of have to show the way in a sense. Yeah. Like you, you set the bar and then your siblings like sort of like go above and beyond, which I think it's, it's really amazing when you see that happening. So I'm very yeah. proud of them. I'm very proud of both my sister and my brother. Uh, but, you know, like it's my job to like set the bar really high so that they can sort of like go above. Yeah. yeah. I've also, going back to Cooper. So I've heard that Cooper Union has a very intense admissions process. <laughs> I would love to know just a little bit about that at SVA. 
the master's program there. That was an intense admissions process, uh, but it felt like it was tempered by Marshall Erisman's warmth. Hmm. Uh, but it felt intense to me. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm curious to know what Cooper is otherwise legendary. Admissions process? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's different for when you apply to the four-year program for the full ride. And, but for type at Cooper, which is continuing at, uh, it's still very challenging in terms of like, you know, you're compared with a lot of people that apply for it. But it's not as, I guess, you know, the fact that I got in with my portfolio, I think maybe at the time there wasn't that much competition because <laughs> I, I look at my work and I'm like, yeah, no, uh, not, can't believe I got in. But I think they took a chance on me. Uh, and part of that was maybe because I was always attending the, the talks even before I applied. And I was, you know, bothering or sort of like emailing with uh, Sasha, the curator of the Little Balance Center, and even asking for like feedback on my own uh, application, my portfolio. And I think part of that shows, I think if you, if you show interest on top of the work, perhaps, you know, you have a better chance at getting in uh, as opposed to pure talent alone. alone. Right, because that doesn't guarantee you'll be a good student or, or you'll be a good classmate. Right. Yeah, talent alone doesn't get you there for sure. Uh, so after Cooper Union, you landed Monotype, or do you have a different <laughs> journey? What, how, how does it go there? Because for Monotype, yeah. you know, as a, as a designer, the, that's a it's a very famous foundry. It was founded in the 1800s, and you know that's that's a a lineage yeah. and a history there, and also a lot of historic typefaces and you've had mm. an opportunity to design a few of those. Like, can you yeah. talk us through how you got to monotype and the, um, what, what the weight that you might perceive within that space is? Yeah. I, I try not to think too much about the weight because that tends to be stressful in the you sense. You see what I did there? Uh, weight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, type, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Font typeface. That, that, that was a bold statement, huh? <laughs> Oh, God, this is the nerdiest conversation ever. <laughs> I, I love it. It wasn't as easy as, as, as it seems. It, it did take like two years uh, to actually land the job at Monotype. It didn't, the process didn't take two years. It's just, it took me two years to uh, get, I guess, be good enough and be ready for when the moment presented itself. Um, obviously, type design is, is a field where full-time jobs are very rare. Um, so... I finished type at Cooper and I went back to my previous job as a graphic designer. Uh, so I was doing that and I was, you know, part of that is being in that uh, group of people that are really, that really want to be full-time type designers. I think what type at Cooper offers perhaps apart from the education is that network, uh, a network of people who really want to be doing type design full-time 24 seven. And that's, you know, that's like finding your people. I think that's really important. And through that, you know, you sort of like, keep an eye out for openings. Uh, so even before Monotype, I joined a company who did uh, robot, robots that did handwriting. And what happened, company was that? Uh, it was called Bond. I think they, they're, they're closed now because they got bought out. Um, but basically, you know, two of my Tabard Cooper classmates, um, one of them, two of them actually were working there. And they kind of like, they kind of like, I guess they, they called me out for, for lunch one day. I was like, hey, uh, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing great. Um, so do you want to come work with us? I'm like, and you no, know, it was do it, doing type 24-7, like handwriting fonts, pretty much just for robots to write letters. Yeah. And that was, that was interesting. Um, I figured out, well, I'd rather spend my time, you know, designing fonts than doing graphic design at this point in my life. So I did, I took that jump and joined the startup. Um, 
and after that, you know, there was an opening at Monotype and I, I was during this whole time, I'm working on my portfolio. Like I'm working on my typefaces, I'm showing it to people, talking to my teachers, you know, emailing people to like get feedback. Um, and when the time came, I had a portfolio ready, I applied and I got an interview. And I think the rest of it is just, um, I'm just, I've been there since for the past four, four and a half years. So it was like, you know, I was, once I was ready and two, you know, uh, I had prepared for it. For the projects that you first jumped yeah. into, because I feel like we're jumping around almost too quickly right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I would love to just slow down or kind of like creep into the incrementals of where we are here. Mm. So yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'm going to re-edit this or if I'll just <laughs> leave this in. Because sometimes it's interesting from a listener just to hear the thought process of the conversation. Too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so for your time at Cooper Union to monotype, was that a goal? Or why, what, what did you think after Cooper, what, what would be the, what was the logical uh, career path after that? Had you set a path for yourself? Mm. What are you thinking about like, what do you want to do and what can you do? Yeah, I think the, the path was to become a full-time tab designer. The location was unknown, obviously, because, you know, like you don't know where you're going to end up working or who for, you know, like, but I think my, my goal at the time, since I don't know where I'm going to land, was to try to up my skills as much as I could. Um, get get to genuinely know like people within the industry that you know could help me you know improve my skills or become references in the future. But in and I want to put emphasis in the word genuine because like it's not there. There's a difference between networking and actually getting to know someone and and you know and caring about you know about the craft. Um, so I, I was trying to be as genuine as possible in in that sense. To like I really want to get better. Uh, give me as much as you feedback as you can. Uh, so it, it was a lot of that um, for, for two years until I was ready. Uh, and so then when, you know, jobs opened up in places, uh, the goal was just to apply and get there. Who were some of the heroes that you were looking at and who were you talking to at the time? Well, who was in oh. your network? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a, that's a good question, actually, because um, I think even before, well, even before I joined Type at Cooper, I think I was starting to get into the circles of type design. Uh, because, you know, if you want to be part of the, the industry, you kind of have to be part of, you know, the whole spirit of the, the era in terms of type. So it, it's very specific as well. Yeah, it's very nerdy. The individuals have, you know, particular uh, approaches, um, yeah. individual processes. And it's it's you're right. It, it's super <laughs> nerdy. Um, it's like the design version of like, I don't know like being a gearhead or a car head. You, just, you get into like the minutia of the details and you can really get lost, but in an awesome way. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think I had the, the fortune of, you know, landing at good places with good people. Like one of the first things I remember is going to the pencil to pixel exhibit, uh, you know, that Monotype did back in like, I don't know, can't remember how many years ago. But, you know, I, I met this guy named Dan Radigan who was giving, you know, the, the tours and he's like super articulate. He was, you know, like someone I looked up to in the sense like, oh, I kind of want to be like him in the sense, you know, he's so like knowledgeable, so articulate, so kind. So I kind of like started, you know, like uh, an email back and forth with him and he sort of like helped me out in a lot of things. Like, like we met up, he gave me feedback on my work. So he's one of those people that I'm always grateful for having around and also grateful for, you know, them being generous with their knowledge and, you know, just, just they're being fabulous and being so nice in, and a good influence in the tap community overall. 
So I think he was, you know, a great person, or he is a great person. Uh, Hannes Famira, also my teacher at Typed Cooper, I think one of his workshops during the program was like really mind blowing. Uh, because you know the, the 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 way he explained sort of like the parameters within type design uh, in a manner that was so accessible to me or I guess to the class um, helped us out a lot. So that and he's always he's been such a really nice person overall, and always very welcoming and you know happy to help out. Um, I think Jesse Reagan as well. I think my instructor. I think most of them are my teachers and people I've reached out to that happen to be you know kind enough to talk to me. You know like see the potential that I, perhaps I could have and like help me out, I think. If we were to go back to your time at Cooper Union or really like your, your educational life mm -hmm. and also now as an educator too, but I want to stick on the Cooper thought. Yeah. Uh, how much would you, how much have you rethought the way that you've been taught and how much mm -hmm. does that inform the way that you currently teach? Because for me, I, I often hit a struggle of the, uh, you know, you know, I, I work at MTV on my, my daytime and I work within, you know, visual expression, expressive design systems yeah. that are often quote unquote disruptive. And I don't necessarily love to align myself to specific, uh, a specific Swiss thought or specific mm -hmm. Eurocentric thought. And I, and I like to be quote unquote untraditional. I don't even know what that means anymore, <laughs> but for you, for you, how, how much of that education at Cooper do you feel uh, was traditional or instilled too much of a, a grid-based thought, let's say? Hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess that question really, uh, I have to face that question when I'm teaching, right? Because you have to like, like if, you, if you're thinking about teaching, like maybe the listeners, right? Yeah you have to question what you're teaching and how you've been taught. So this question is, is really important in the sense that um, I always thought maybe one day I'll teach type design. But so this, this idea of how I'm going to approach the teaching of it has been in my mind for a while since I started teaching typography. Um, and basically there are two things, right? There's the practical component of it, which is you know, the, the important stuff that you need to know so you can practice the craft so you can design letters, right? So like the, the, the developing your eye to see forms. All those things um, they, they taught us at Type at Cooper. And those are things that are so intrinsic to like the design of forms. That's something that I'm keeping in my class. Uh, the approach perhaps is slightly a little bit different um, the way I'm doing it. Uh, but part of that is also the, the context. I think uh, in Type at Cooper, you have both you know, the practice and you also have the, the sort of like the history and theory of it, which uh, is taught by Sasha. So that also was a really helpful component. The, I guess the only thing that perhaps, you know, I try to do in my class is try to put both in conversation to one another, as opposed to have one day history and one day uh, design, uh, which, you know, it happens. Sometimes you in college, you take a history class, you take a graphic design class, and they don't really relate. They go in parallel paths. I think at, I think at Cooper, it was more focused, but the way I teach it in my class, is like they are so connected that you can't set them apart. Like, the, the work you do has an effect, you know, it lives in a cultural context that you cannot dissociate it. Uh, perhaps once you get to a level of a single letter form, maybe, right? But once you get to, to a level of a typeface and you start thinking about the context in which it will be used, it's like you can't really ignore um, the space that it will inhabit 
or you wanted to inhabit. So there's a, I think that in thinking about, you know, the history of the, where, where the specific uh, set of forms that you're making comes from, I think it becomes really important. So I, I try to tie both, try to try to tie more of the history with the actual uh, practice of it as much as I can. And that perhaps is a little something I do slightly, slightly more different than the way I was taught at Cooper. When it comes to cultural context, how important do you think it is to have cultural context when it, com- when it comes to design uh, mm. and also uh, time stamping it to say this is appropriate for a time and place, but then now uh, we have to open up our minds and open up our apertures. Um, and I like to speak uh, to the power of identity and the celebration of personal identity. Is there, is there a component to that uh, when it comes to uh, your own typeface creation? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, you have to, I think we're, we're in a time where, you know, you have to be confident enough to be yourself, I think. Uh, you know, we're, I, I put in a statement on my type display typeface class, like website, that, you know, like just being yourself, having that confidence, is, it's important. Uh, it's always been important, but it is important now more than ever. So you can stand up and speak up for the things you, you believe in and you think you think are right. Uh, so part of that, you know, in the work, uh, being able to do the work that perhaps you know represents you, uh, it's important. So if the cultural context, uh, word of the work, I think is embedded in the work. You could maybe disassociate it years from now, uh, but I think you know to to try to aim towards something that. I don't know, could be timeless. I don't know if the question was getting at that. You know, like it's perhaps such a big challenge that I, I don't really worry much about that when I'm yeah. doing my own personal work. It's more about getting the things that I want out of my own self into the forms, into the design work and let other people, you know, like talk about it if they want to. If they think it sucks, well, let them think that way. You know, it's like, it's, right. uh, it's the work that's creating something to that people react to. I think that's, that part of it is it's important. Like if their work is not evoking any feelings, you know, it's like, then I don't know how successful perhaps that is. You know, it could be depending if that's your goal. But you know, for me, it's like, I want to put the work out there that I think re- represents me. And, you know, I put my heart and soul in it and whatever happens next, you know, let it be. Yeah. Not worry much about that. Do you think about timelessness in your work? I, I personally now, I've kind of leaned into the idea mm. that work is disposable. And I'm, I actively think that <laughs> I actively think that about my work, so that yeah, I don't, yeah. so that I'm not precious about it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I think that there's room for both. Like you know, the, there there are things that you perhaps you want them to last a little bit longer than they should. Uh, but timelessness, I, I don't know if that's something you can account for. Uh, I think the idea of moving past your first draft it's really important, not only in the work but also you know in your career. Like you you shouldn't be like, oh, this is the job I want to stay at forever, right? You should always be looking towards the next thing, whether it's teaching, even like with, you know, friends, you know, you should always try to grow uh, the group of people you're around because your interests change, right? So that, so this, I would say the same thing with the work, you know, the work will evolve, the, the work wants to evolve. I don't know if that's too much, uh, like the brick uh, wants to be something like that concept that comes from architecture. Uh, <laughs> but, it's, but it's like that idea, like, you know, like, you you do something and you learn something from as long as you learn something from the thing you've done, whether it's you know a statement, a piece of work, a friendship, or something. Uh, I think that's moving moving forward, and the timelessness perhaps comes 
over time because you don't you don't know what's gonna make what's gonna come back around right because everything seems very circular right now like in terms of styles a lot of things that were you know like uh perhaps like that pat were past their trends or their fads are kind of coming back around are being recycled so i think timelessness perhaps is something that we shouldn't worry about too much uh, I want to cover something that you just brought up that I thought was a fascinating point. Like the brick wants to be something. Oh and, yeah. 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 Well, that seems to me like that, that's speaking like, like the brick wants to be something more than it is, but it's like very utilitarian it is. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, I'm a fan of architecture. So there's this, there's this quote by Louis Kahn that, he um, pretty much, you know, when he's building something, he there's a famous quote that says, uh, you know, you you ask the brick, what do you want to be, brick? And the brick says, I'd like an arch. And so and you say to the brick, hey, what about this? And the brick says, I like an arch. So it's like you, I, mean, I think that perhaps, you know, like you can think of it also in terms of letter forms in the sense that um, you, could, you, could, you could have some intention towards something yet the world will perceive it in a different way. Like, like perhaps like losing that idea of control, like you, you make the thing you want to make and then once it's out in the world, you know, like the world will make it its own. Its own. So even if you design something timeless, it's not going to be timeless. Right. Um, That's very you true. You never know what's going to happen. You never yeah. know what's going to happen. 2020, you never know yeah, yeah. what's going to happen. I want to speak a little bit about creative organizations. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so this summer you left a creative organization. Yeah. Um, and we can say what it is. It's the TDC, the Type Directors Club. And we don't have to get into that. Yeah. Uh, but I would love to talk a little bit about what the what the value, the perceived value is of creative organizations that date that go way, way back before you and I were born. And also, you know, not unlike um, a lot of the other advertising clubs from many, many decades ago. It's no, but, but you know, we talk about it on this podcast a lot. Yeah. A lot of creative organizations are built to to recreate themselves yeah. in perpetuity. And specifically, I'm thinking of the episode with Isometric Studio with uh, Andy Chen and uh, Vakas Jawade. I actually think about a lot. I think about that episode a lot, actually. Mm because they, uh, we talked a lot about public spaces and also uh, the perpetuation of organizations. And like, you know, we, we were speaking about it in an academic level there, but I think mm. it relates to a lot of things. So when you left the TDC this summer, um, you had a lot of uh, feedback from everyone that supported you and otherwise. Mm-hmm. What I would love to know is what you felt were the positive moments of that experience and also speak a little bit about the positive feedback and the support, because I think also that's fed into the support for uh, the, the BIPOC um, principles of typeface design. The scholarship. Yeah. Type. Yeah. The scholarship. Yeah. Can I, I'm just going to call it the scholarship. <laughs> I keep yeah, looking yeah. at the line, but the, the BIPOC scholarship. So yeah. So the, the feedback was the positive feedback was great. I think uh, seeing the support of the community that, you know, kind of like, perhaps could put themselves in my shoes and understand what I go through uh, and supported me, uh, you know, either by sending me private messages of support or sharing their own stories privately or publicly. I think that showed that there is a need for people, you know, to speak up against, you know, organizations that perhaps are not 
supporting the communities they they perhaps want to support or their they their their statements say they are supporting. Um, so you know, like the the response for me was very uh, heart heartwarming. Uh, just to see that there's people out there that you know under sort of like understand and they want to help. Uh, and I think you know, apart from making statements. You have to put your energy, you know, where you got to put your money where your mouth is, basically. So uh, I realized that I don't really need to stress myself in an organization that's not supporting me for me to do the things that I, I feel like are helping the community a little bit more. So I decided to, you know, go out. And I think the response of the people kind of like maybe so like reaffirmed the fact that I was already doing, you know, positive things outside of that, you know, like. Perhaps you don't need those just elitist organizations around to do good things. Like we don't need to be excluded. We need to go through those things for us to like you know bring positive change toward the towards our industry and our field. Um, so yeah, the positive response was great. I think you know I I hope it makes people more encouraging encouraged to like speak up against these things that you know there's 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 a lot of support for people who you know want to perhaps have initiatives that you know help diversify and make the field more inclusive so you know i'm happy to support that uh, as opposed to the opposite you know can you speak a little bit about the importance of activism through design i i know that right now working from home and that you have a a, a lot of creatives from around the world yeah to uh use their own platforms and social media in order to level the playing field. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you feel are, uh, what's the importance of design activism? And also, is that something that you've always thought about? Mm-hmm. Or is that something that um, that's a more recent thought? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's, that, that's a really did, um, not an easy question to answer. I think it's, it's really important to be an activist and be behind the causes you think are, are just and unfair, uh, that bring positive change. Uh, is that something I always thought about? I think, you know, my goal when I, when I first moved to this country and like as becoming a professional, my goal was to just make it, you know, like make it out there. And I think once you get to a certain level of, you know, like once you sort of have a small platform, you realize that you perhaps have a small influence, not only the people around you, but perhaps other people that might look up to you or might see you as, a, I don't know, as someone to look up to, right? Uh, I think once you notice, once you realize that, you realize that, oh, okay, so now I actually have to, you, not, not that you shouldn't have done that before, but, you know, like now you have a more of a bigger responsibility in the things that you're doing, especially when you're not, you join an organization, you join a company, you become a little bit more visible like the things you do, like kind of have to bring positive influence into the field that you're part of, into the community. Um, so, so I think a lot of that thinking started once I realized, oh, maybe I, maybe, maybe people actually look at me and maybe they see themselves, you know, working at a large company. Maybe they see themselves, oh, now he's joined this organization that's known for being elitist, right? Uh, and I realized, okay, so then, you know, now that I have some sort of influence, maybe I can do some change. And I think a lot of those things started there. Um, and also, you know, like, I think we talked about previously about this idea of legacy. And just to jump onto that topic, uh, 
basically, you know, it's like, what do you want to be remembered for? Uh, if there's, you know, at least a couple of things or one thing, it's like, well, someone who perhaps helped people, you know, and was uh, some sort of like a bridge or a connection uh, from one place to another. I think, you know, being uh, bilingual is one of those things, being able to speak both English and Spanish and be like a bridge for those two uh, languages. Um, that's one thing. You know, I don't know. It feels like a lot of like maybe added responsibility to the role because not only do I have to do good work, but I also have to, you know, set a good example. Uh, and I think, you know, no, no one's putting that weight on me, but, you know, you put it on yourself, I guess. Uh, and I think part of that is like, yeah, so like I need to do all these other things to have a positive influence uh, in my field, I guess, in my community, uh, but also to set a good example to my siblings. Um, I know we were talking about uh, Bell Hooks uh, before. Oh, yeah. And also uh, uh, her inspiration. And for the, for the listeners, she's an author, a feminist. Um, she's very outspoken in civil rights, but she writes a lot about intersectionality uh, and race, capitalism, and, way that, uh, and also gender, um, and also the perpetuation of oppressive systems and also class. And I, you know, those are a lot of topics that we actively talk about. Um, and I think that now within 2020, the the discussion of the dismantleization of the of systems is important. And I think, for me, the that a lot of organizations and I and I don't want to just isolate the TDC in this space because I value like a lot of individuals there too. Yeah. Uh, um, and also same thing with AIGA, same thing with ADC. Um, I, I think that the active discussion um, from the, those within those organizations, um, it, it is a, an active mental shift. And, um, you know, I also, I applaud you for your bravery and I applaud you for, for really jumping out there because not a lot of people stick their neck out, man. Not a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah, it was hard, man. It was really hard to go out and say those things, but uh, yeah. I mean, they're true. So um, I think that gives power, you know, like, I'm speaking my truth and these are all, none of that is, it's, it's, it's false. So it's like, okay. The fact that people support you and that's amazing. I wanted to ask you specifically about uh, Massimo Vignelli. Ooh. Uh, I know because we, well, because this is like a a slight shift uh, in the conversation moving away from the organizations thing, but this is more of like, um, you know, the, what we value as quote unquote good designer, what we value as yeah, uh, yeah. the evergreens and the heroes. And mm-hmm. obviously he's a legend, um, you know, yeah. um, famously immortalized to, to the rest of the world <laughs> in the Helvetica film. But yeah. We were talking about a quote that he had about disease, uh, about the disease of bad design. Um, I'm terribly <laughs> misquoting it. You know, better than me. Uh, but, now in 2020, I think that the question that we would throw back at that is, what are you calling a disease? What does disease mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I think, uh, you know, if anyone has watched Helvetica, you know, I think when I watched as a student, there were a lot of people there who might have no idea who they were. And over the years, I've rewatched them and I realized I know pretty much everyone that's there. Not personally, but I know who they are. And one of the most like, famous people is Massimo Vignelli, who speaks in there. 
And he makes a lot of like very strong statements about design that, you know, if you are a student, it's very easy to like be sort of seduced by those statements. And like, yeah, you know, it's like when he says, you know, like graphic designers are the curing disease and diseases everything around you visually, you know, you're like, wow, wow. You know, you feel empowered in a sense. You're like, yeah, I, I can go there with the power of design and make this work. Uh, but, you know, it's like, that's that's not right uh, because what he what he's asked what he's proposing as the cure perhaps we can think of it that way is this you know this sort of like um, modernist design aesthetic um, and I think there's a lot of things to learn from that I think one thing is like one he's he he say, he feels like he's able to to share that thought with everyone right like I think it's rare nowadays that you see someone making such a bold statement. Uh, oh, that's yeah. not happening you anymore. You would come off like a pretentious asshole. Yeah. Uh, plus, too, you know, we, we can also learn from, from the things he said because he's, he, you know, like he, he also has said other things that are not bad. <laughs> so, that are <laughs> he not. Just, he just happened to be recorded that time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, he's also said some things that are even worse. Uh, but the, the point is that, you know, that people are complex, right? And perhaps the cutting of that scene wasn't the best. Like maybe there need to be more criticality in the way we present these figures and, you know, like try not to go for like short snippets of things that could become, that are problematic and, you know, perhaps present them in a way that, you know, it creates, it, it leads to questions more than answers, right? Somebody, no one should tell you like, this is the cure, um, that should maybe help you think about, you know, what is being perceived as a disease to begin with. And then you can start talking about, you know, oh, okay, so disease in what context? Uh, is it really a disease? And then, you know, who's the doctor here? Like, all, all of these things, is, uh, they, they tend to simplify things. And perhaps, you know, that's, that's one of his faults with that statement. Yeah, yes. I, I co-sign everything that you're saying. I think that authoritarian statements like that just... Yeah just don't play so well anymore. Uh, <laughs> and also, especially now where when so much design is aligned with your identity and also a lot of personal, um, personal artistry. And, you know, that there's a lot of stuff happening in there. Mm-hmm. I talked about it, you know, last episode with, with Gail Anderson. Uh, I would just, I wouldn't want someone like that, an authoritarian figure telling me that, they their POV was the cure when I'm perceived as the disease. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's an important lesson to to give to students, right? To like present them with a statement and then have them question that statement uh, through their own experience, basically. Because yeah. uh, all you have to do is just look outside and see. Wait, this is not a disease. Who is this person? Right. And all of a sudden, you have this like friction uh, from one thing to another, and it's a friction that does not live in the theory realm. It, it has the viscerality of it affecting you at a personal level because it's the stuff you read when you go to the bagel store or when you go to the deli, right? And you're like, yeah, no. So there's you know this application of it in theory and in practice. And I think we are at a time that perhaps those two things need to be married because we you know. They, for so long, I feel, you know, we, uh, the, the way, you know, like we think of design, we think perhaps it has to do, and this is a concept that um, it doesn't come from me, uh, but, you know, like talking to 
uh, to I guess one of my, one of the people I've I've been I've talk, been talking to for recently, uh, Ramon Tejada. Now he has this idea of uh, design with a lowercase d, uh, which is you know is different from design with an uppercase d, which is you know, everything that perhaps leaves on like on the higher realm of design. You know everything we consider design, uh, and lowercase d is everything else. Everything you is everything else. So um, so yeah, I think they're both design, right? And and I guess you know no one should tell you what what design is necessarily like. You could you should be able to define design um, in any way you want because you know design basically is like for me it's like you know a way to like communicate something visually in a sense right. And there are multiple ways of doing that. Um, so its success you know depends on the parameters you've set out for it to be successful. And just because it's something that lives in a public realm does not make it less of than something that perhaps lives in a museum. Uh, so maybe less of that differentiation and more of like the intentions of it, you know, th uh, being critical of and who's making the work and what it's doing. I think those are perhaps more important questions to talk about when we talk about design. Yeah, agree. Uh, so I want to go back to monotypes. So bring it all the way back to monotypes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and also, wow, we're almost at an hour. Crazy. Uh, so thank you. Well, we're coming to, to the close of this. This has been <laughs> such a good conversation. We've got to do a part two. But uh, at Monotype, you've designed several typefaces with them. So I'm going to read some of the names. Uh, Gregorio, mm -hmm. Horatio, Flatbush. Oh, no, Porter. those are my own designs. <laughs> oh, those are, your, those are your own. Yeah, oh, yeah. I understand. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. My other question was, maybe this invalidates the question, but mm -hmm. I want to ask how political does it get to name the typeface oh. at a place like Monotype? Because I know for us, it's, it's been the same thing at every large organization they've ever been in. The, the naming mm -hmm. of a product is so political. I want to get some insight into that. Uh, could you explain a little bit more what you mean by political? Oh, just like th there's a lot of input. Oh, you okay. To, you, have to, you have to communicate to a, a lot of individuals, a yeah, lot of yeah. leaders, because um, you know, like when you start when you name something, there's also the marketing aspect of it. So, yeah. Uh, there's yeah. the consumer-facing piece that isn't necessarily part of your, you know, your own personal emotional artistry journey. Yeah. So, so I think the naming of fonts is difficult to begin with, and I think naming of naming fonts at a company like as big as Monotype, perhaps it could be even harder because you know you have to find something you can trademark, right? Uh, because essentially, given its long history uh, in the type world, a lot of the typefaces that Monotype has um, are kind of like I guess classics, if you will, or well-known brands on their own. Um, if you think of Helvetica, right? That's uh, it's. It's perhaps it's grown beyond its forms or its physicality. It's now something that you know it had its own movie. Like we never thought of a phone having its own movie or a type, right? Uh, so there are things like that that we have to take into account. Um, so so yeah, I, luckily I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> I don't I don't really uh, since I haven't released anything of my own through the company yet. Um, I haven't had to like, come up with a name for it and have it gone through those through like that process of figuring out what the name is and how is it trademark and all that uh but i know it's very uh it's very difficult and you know it's 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 a ton of work just to come up with a, a name that you're happy with and the two that you can trademark so it's yeah. uh it's not an easy process totally so for the typefaces that you've designed yourself what is your naming inspiration for gregorio horatio oh. <laughs> uh 
Yeah, so those are uh, very personal projects. Like every typhus to me is a personal project because you, you learn so much from doing them. And if perhaps you aren't, you know, like it, it's, it's a different thing. Like I grow a lot by just doing a typhus. So Gregorio was my final project at Type at Cooper. And the basic idea is his, uh, if you think of the Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka, right? Gregor Samsa is the protagonist. So my typhus being Greg, is Gregorio, supposedly, you know, the Latin American double. So I'm trying to like find my own identity through my own typeface. Uh, and basically, because Gregor Samsa is not human, it becomes a bug, right? The typeface that I designed kind of lives in that hybrid space of not being a serif and not being a sans. It's more like a semi-serif. And, you know, so that was, that's where the name comes from, uh, from like, uh, so like the metamorphosis of Franz Kafka and that duality of identities, right? Uh, I guess Horatio just came from, I uh, was reading a book for Horatio Quiroga, who is a, uh, is a writer from uh, Uruguay. And he, you know, he basically writes like dark like horror stories, if you will, like Edgar Allan Poe, but Latin American. Uh, so, so yeah, so I, I really like the name. So, and I also like the typeface because he has like sharp corners and soft forms. And like, it conveys that idea of like, sort of like the language that Horatio Quiroga writes in, in his books. Um, the other two, uh, they're still in progress. Uh, I'm, you know, Flatbush just, I named it Flatbush because, you know, I lived on Flatbush. <laughs> and there's a lot of design that I see is very compressed and that's not the final name. You know, there's a lot of things to think about when it comes to a final name. So I think that's just the working name for now. Uh, and Porter just came because I, I saw this, like, when you stretch typhuses both vertically, um, they tend to be heavy on the horizontals. And you see a lot of that, you know, like on the streets too, when you're trying to compress type to fit, you know, you usually compress the verticals, but the horizontals stay thick. So there's a lot of thickness in the horizontals. Uh, and then I basically was looking at, I was doing laundry and I saw on the back the word Porter, one of those like, you know, like tags. And I was like, oh, that's a good name. And because it was also like, you know, it was, wasn't a tag, it was like the proportions are not perfect. So I decided to use that name. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they're all in a sense still works in progress, right? Yeah. The names too, uh, because I haven't, I have not trademarked them. Um, and that's just something you have to live with. <laughs> yeah. There, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, it's always a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah. It's always a work in progress. Yeah. Cool. Well, Juan, thank you so much for joining us on First Generation Burden. This, mm -hmm. is, this is such a great conversation. Uh, also, I appreciate seeing you uh, on Zoom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we got to grab that coffee IRL again soon. Yeah, um, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, uh, if you want to uh, tell our listeners uh, where they can find you on social media and also anything that you want to talk about, any upcoming projects, I know that we, uh, you're funding another uh, semester for your scholarship. So tell us a little bit about that and anything else. Um, yeah. So you can find me online at, at, at Juan underscore Kafka on social media, Instagram, Twitter. Um, I'm also founder of TypeGrid Crew, which is again, an organization to connect people interested in studying type design with professional type designers. So check that out as well at TypeGrid Crew. Uh, I'll be teaching my class and you can help me by spreading the word if it's still, the deadline is this Friday, so I don't know when this will come out, but you know, if anything, at least support the work of the students. And I think, you know, there's always more like type design classes coming out from other people. I think it's important also to support that 
because the more access to education, I think it's the better it becomes for our field because then more people, you know, can become it, uh, type designers, right? Um, and use that, like that, that skill. So, so yeah, I think that's pretty much it for now. All right, brother. Thank you for joining us today and hopefully talk to you soon. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Juan sent me a message shortly after we recorded this and wanted to make sure to remind you all to vote. Couldn't agree more. Get your ballots now. Do it by mail. Do it in person. Do whatever you got to do. Uh, but that said, you can find this podcast, First Generation Burden, on Apple, Spotify, Google, and anywhere you get your podcast content. Please rate us and drop a review. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden. You can find me, your host, at rich underscore to you. Thanks to Listening Party and Desjin team for their support. Be safe, everyone. And again, November 3rd, don't forget to vote. Get out there. Do it.